0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's Passover week and Easter weekend too, so this is a holiday clips edition of the program. As we're all housebound, I thought it might be a good time to feature one of my favorite author conversations. So let's have a listen to my 2018 chat with the great Nell Painter. Painter is the author of Old in Art School, a memoir of starting over. The starting over of the title refers to Painter's retirement after an elite career as an Ivy League historian to return to college as a 60-something student, first to take undergraduate studio art courses at Rutgers, then to pursue an MFA at the Rhode Island School of Design. Painter's memoir, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Autobiography, details her interactions with students and faculty and how she tried to think through how to make art after having spent decades teaching and writing history. Before going to art school, Painter was one of America's most distinguished historians. She is the Edwards Professor of American History, Emerita, at Princeton University. Her books include Standing in Armageddon, Sojourner Truth, A Life, A Symbol, and the New York Times bestseller, The History of White People. They're certainly two of my favorites. She's a past president of both the Organization of American Historians and the Southern Historical Association. Earlier this year, Painter assumed the chairmanship of the McDowell Colony. Olden Art School came out in paperback late last year. And right now, Amazon offers the Kindle edition for just $4. We'll have a link on the show page at manpodcast.com. Please remember to rate and review us five stars, please. And Apple Podcasts reviews help a whole lot. Finally, if you'd like to hear something new, don't miss the bonus episode that pushed on Monday. It features critics Christopher Knight and Antoine Sargent on what it's like to be a critic when you can't look at art. Keep an ear out for more bonus episodes soon. I'll be talking with artists about what it's like to have an important solo show close pretty much as soon as it's opened. And I think I'll be talking with some artists about how the pandemic is already surfacing in what they're making. But right now, Nell Painter, after the break. Experience Barry X. Ball remaking sculpture at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through April 19th. The artist Barry Exball reinvents traditional sculptural formats and existing art historical landmarks using state-of-the-art 3D scanning technology, computer-aided modeling software, and CNC milling machines in combination with centuries-old craft techniques requiring thousands of hours of detailed handwork. Barry Exball Remaking Sculpture is the artist's first major U.S. museum survey. Learn more and plan a visit at NasherSculptureCenter.org. Support comes from Getty. In Recording Artists, a Getty podcast series, art historian Helen Moldsworth explores the lives and work of six women artists, Yoko Ono, Ava Hesse, Betty Saar, Helen Frankenthaler, Alice Neal, and Lee Krasner. Rare interviews from the 60s and 70s, plus new interviews with contemporary artists, help unpack what it meant, and still means, to be a woman making art. Named a binge-worthy art podcast by the New York Times, you can listen now at getty.edu slash recording artists. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln began in 1888 as a
1: community-organized fine arts society. Within months of forming, the group audaciously presented its first exhibition, borrowing a 12-by-18-foot canvas by Carl Theodore von Pliotti from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So many people traveled to Lincoln to see the work, on view in the federal courtroom of the city's post office, that the superintendent of the Burlington Railroad scheduled additional trains throughout the state. Today, Sheldon Museum of Art houses nearly
0: 13,000 objects in diverse media in a landmark Philip Johnson building. Sheldon Treasures, a selection of some of the collection's most important and best-known objects by artists
1: including Louise Bourgeois, Arthur Dove, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, Kay Sage, and Stanley Whitney, is on view through December 31st. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And we're back. Nell Painter, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Thank you. Good to be with you.
1: The obvious place to begin is to ask why you wanted to go to art school. But I think that before we get near that question, I need to introduce what was going on when you were making that decision and as you started school. You were finishing a book titled The History of White People that was published in 2010. It was and is a, a very major book, the kind of book that is reviewed on the front page of major book reviews, the kind of book that was reviewed in the New York Review of Books by Edmund Morgan, a very major historian, and it may have been, indeed, the last thing he wrote before his death. As you were making the art school decision, you were about to ascend to the presidency of the Organization of American Historians, and in the midst of all of these crowningest of crowning achievements, you decided to step away from it all and go to art school. Why?
2: The short answer is because I could. (laughs) I've been a very fortunate person in my life, and I'm a very grateful person. And I was at a place, I didn't understand exactly where I was, so part of it was ignorance. I was at a place where I could take another step, a sidestep. And my mother had showed me that it's possible to reinvent yourself when you leave your old life and move into something else. Now they call it an encore, an encore career. So that the short answer is I could. My husband was taking care of me. My parents, I thought wrongly, were stabilized. My book, I thought wrongly, was pretty much done. I didn't understand how much time and anguish and a billion emails and conference calls would go into the presidency of the Organization of American Historians. I was also president of the Southern Historical Association, which was a much easier job. It kind of runs the way it always has. So, because I could and because I didn't know how much was lying in wait...
1: To pick up two things from that, your husband is Glenn Schaefer. He's a professor at the business school at Rutgers. So I think you meant he was taking care of you financially and professionally and all that.
2: Yes, and emotionally.
1: Not Very Yeah, supportive. yeah. yeah not, not in a health-oriented way, as was really the case with your parents. He's in good health. Yeah. You mentioned your mother. At age 65, she became a first-time author. Did you and she talk about that back when she was deciding to do that?
2: We did. I don't remember what we said, but I was very close to both my parents, and my mother always been a very good writer. I spent a good bit of my time in my youth away from home, so she wrote me these wonderful letters, which are at Duke in my archive. And uh, in her job, which she got kind of late, but which she enjoyed, she wrote reports, and she also worked as a research assistant for me at one point when I needed some some research assistance from the University of California, Berkeley Library. So it was a kind of natural thing for her to do, but it was hard because it was new, and it was also hard because my father, who was a man of his generation, born in 1919, thought of his wife, my mother, as his wife. And so he always felt kind of in competition with her writing, which was hard for her. But she did it. She did it. Her first book was African-American history, you could say. It's called The Unsung Heart of Black America, which was not her title. It was the title her publisher gave her. And it was about the nice middle-class black people who were our friends, whom she felt were ignored in American society. So that in that one, she wrote as a black woman about black people, you know, it was rep- representing a larger phenomenon. The second one, after the 10 years research writing and publishing the first one, the second one was a memoir, and she wrote it as herself. She wrote it as an individual. This is really hard to do when you're a black American woman because everybody wants you to, first of all, tell us about what it's like to be a black person in America, tell us about racism in America. Again, you're supposed to represent a larger phenomenon, and she wrote it as herself. So, in a sense, I don't think we ever talked about that specifically, but that example, I think, helped me out of history and into art, where I do make art as myself, as an individual.
1: You can't let her second book pass without mentioning the title, which is great.
2: Oh, yes, I'm sorry. (laughs) The title is, I hope I look that good when I'm that old, which is what people told her all the time. And now people say it to me. But I think that 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 title also gave me an encouragement to to kind of wink at the reader and say something that's kind of forbidden in a way for a woman, an older woman, an older black woman to embrace looking good.
1: Yeah, it's an all time great title and it's an all-time great cover because it's colorful it's a it's a kind of a, a deep lavender it just kind of jumps at you so before you could be interested in going to art school you had to be interested in visual culture and art and its place its import its relevance and a few times in the book you mention or more like hint maybe that part of the research and writing process for the history of white people and and also in your other books got you thinking about art, got some images into your books, images that got you thinking about visual art as historically important as objects with cultural value. Probably the two books where that was most, where that most happened in your professional practice were the history of white people and your book about Sojourner Truth. Could you walk us through how that happened?
2: So I always had this sort of little visual bean in my brain. I had been an art major for a while at Berkeley, and
1: this is as an undergrad earlier in your. As an life.
2: undergrad, long, long, long time ago, and then from like the early '80s, I was a knitter. So I'm still a knitter. I'm learning how to make socks now, but you know the wealth of what comes through your eyes for me as a knitter was always there, but for Sojourner Truth, I turned to the image because words were failing me. So it wasn't a step into the visual for the visual sake. It was a step into the visual faux de mieux because Sojourner Truth didn't read and write. And I, I had to find some means of getting to her.
1: To her personhood, to her. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm hesitating because, you know, you're always mediated, even as I'm talking to you, and then this is going out into the world, there's the, you are mediating it, and there's editing and so forth. So there are always all these steps. You can't be directly, you don't have, I don't have direct access to a person's hood, yours or Sojourner Truth. The closest I could get was something that she made, her own self-fashioning through photographs. So photographs, of course, are visual. Luckily, at Princeton, I had the wonderful Marcon Art Artistry Library. So I just went over there and immersed myself in the history of photography. And I found it absolutely fascinating. I loved it. I loved learning about images, looking at images, maybe uh, criticizing in the sense of art criticism is too strong a word, but just knowing uh, finding another way of knowing. So that was the first step. And then I didn't finish The History of White People as planned, and so it, it dragged into art school. And art school got into The History of White People. So it's a very visual book. I had long been interested in the the concept of beauty, And to go back to my mother, if you can see in your mind's eye, or maybe you even have the image from my book, her cover, you can see that she's a dark-skinned woman, and that makes a tremendous difference in American culture. So, so much of racism is about skin color. Not all of it, obviously. There's a whole lot more going on, which has to do with class and, and gender and so on. But she's a dark-skinned woman, and as a dark-skinned woman, even though absolutely stunning woman, a stunning young woman, she grew up as not a beauty. So my mother could only become publicly beautiful after Black is Beautiful in the 60s and 70s. So in a sense, the title of her book is situated in history as a post-1970s book, I hope I look that good. And people being able to say to her, she looks good, even though she has dark skin, or she looks good in her dark skin. So the whole question of beauty had had been intriguing me since, gosh, the end of the 20th century. And I floated around a book proposal that got turned down. But, you know, the interest stayed with me. So the question of beauty went from my mother and the failed book proposal into the history of white people in which I was able to see how important beauty was for the scientists who were talking about race. So history of white people also, one chapter starts with Winckelmann, who's kind of a father of art history, and his aesthetic of hard white bodies. So there's just a lot going on in history of white people that has to do with visual culture. And I don't know how many reviewers picked up on that. That's been a while ago. But I know it's important for me. And I actually bootlegged four of my own drawings into that book on page 26.
1: Which is also in Olden Art School. And and of course, art and artists were absolutely part of that 60s, 70s, black is beautiful movement. Think Barclay Hendricks, for example, and, and still are. Carrie James Marshall still makes paintings that address beauty's present and past.
2: You know, I, for- I forgot something in, in Monon I was talking about <laughs> about getting into images. And that was a book that I wrote called Creating Black Americans, in which the images are black fine art. So I gave myself a kind of, just a partial education in black art history because I was only dealing with with black fine art that related to history. But I learned about a lot of art I had not known about and a lot of artists I had never heard of until I worked on that book. And I took that knowledge into art school.
1: So we'll get in a moment to the art school decisions, why why Rutgers, why RISD and all that. But while we're in this historian slash artist overlapping space, given that you have now trained as both an historian and as an artist and that you've been making work for, for a decade, have your ideas about how historians should and might consider visual material as historical documents changed?
2: Profoundly. The first thing is that I no, long, no longer feel you can write history adequately if you don't deal with the visual, especially 20th century history. And going forward, now we're well into the 21st century, so I suppose some historians are dealing with the early 21st century. So that that root into knowledge, that root into understanding, into what makes an event or what what makes the historical representation of figures the visual must be part of that so yes very important and more and more important and more and more important as the visual becomes more salient in how we know what's going on in our world so i see for instance that The New York Times, which we read every day in two ways. We read the the paper paper, but we also read online, is using videos much more than it had before, recognizing that how people quote-unquote read has to do with their seeing moving images or what passes for a moving image. So how we read is changing as we speak, but I will also add that when I was artist and and scholar in residence at Yale in 2012, which was right after I finished at the Rhode Island School of Design, people asked me a very similar question, only it was about how I think about history. I could not answer the question. I, I kind of said, duh, I really couldn't answer the question. I got asked twice, and I said, duh, twice. <laughs> and and then I would say, well, I don't think about history anymore, which is totally stupid. <laughs> no, I'm, but you see, I wrote this book after uh, 2012, after duh, and the writing of it helped me see how I was still thinking about history and so the way that i think the difference came through for me and I'm here i'm not speaking of historians in general or the historical profession was an interest that had roots earlier on even in biography was a fascination with the peculiar in the sense or well i should say the particular even if it's peculiar the particular, even if it does not represent a larger phenomenon. So, for instance, my first biography was Hosea Hudson, Black Communist in the Deep South, and then there was uh, Sojourner Truth. So when I wrote those, I think I still wrote those with the sense, as a historian, of making broader claims of the broader import the broader historical import of these two individuals. But after art school, and as it kind of trickled down into my consciousness, I began to embrace the peculiar or the particular or the individual or subjectivities, even if I couldn't answer the questions I had, just because they were interesting. And that's that's the way artists work. It's also the way writers work, especially fiction writers, that they can focus on a person or a phenomenon just because it's fascinating. So that's how finally I recognized what the visual was doing to my thinking about history.
1: As much as I enjoy cruising along at 30,000 feet, especially because we're talking about issues that I work through every day in my professional life, we should get you into Rutgers and get you into art school. So why, why Rutgers and why painting?
2: Rutgers. My husband is a Rutgers professor. So we've been attached to Rutgers for quite a while. Rutgers is a very good institution. Oh, the first thing is that Princeton doesn't have a degree program.
1: You taught at Princeton. We should mention you taught at Princeton. Yeah,
2: I taught at Princeton. I started painting at Princeton. And then I took the Drawing and Painting Marathon at the studio school. So that's why painting. At first I thought I could do it at Rutgers Newark, because we live in Newark. But I spoke to Denise Tomasos, the late, much-missed Denise Tomasos, about going to, to Rutgers Newark because that was close and easy, and it's part of Rutgers, and they have they have a fine art uh, program. She said, no, you need a larger program. She said, Mason Gross uh, at New Brunswick. And I talked to several other people. Mason Gross has a really wonderful reputation, as it should.
1: Can I, can I jump in really quickly? Rutgers University, the main campus is in New Brunswick, which is in central New Jersey, south of Newark.
2: That's right. Thank you. But easily, a train right away. So I applied to Mason Gross at Rutgers, and I got in. I was tremendously proud. I thought it was really hard to do. I learned later that it's maybe not that hard to do. And uh, I really enjoyed my time there, and I should have stayed longer. But for a whole lot of reasons, I made a bad decision to go to graduate school after three years of undergraduate school. And I wrote a chapter on this called, A Bad Decision, which had to do with my mother's death and my getting old and just all these things that shouldn't have weighed in. So I applied to several graduate schools, and the one I really, really wanted to go to was Yale. And I have have an honorary doctorate from Yale. (laughs) I mean, it's not as if I have no relationship with Yale. And they turned me down flat. That really hurt. And my second choice was the Rhode Island School of Design, also a school with a reputation for intensity and hard work. That's what I wanted, intensity and hard work. So I was just delighted when they accepted me, and I went there, and my first few weeks were just the Elysian Fields. I loved it, yeah. Yeah.
1: The, I think the real guts of the book, and, and probably my favorite part of the book, is your account of your MFA experience at RISD. As someone who myself works in art, but who comes from far outside the art world, my, you know my background is and was journalism. One of the loudest themes of the book for me was how nearly everyone on the art side of the book seemed, and especially at RISD, seemed to lack any respect for your outside-of-art knowledge and experience and expertise and achievement. Did you feel like the art people at RISD, whether they be students or faculty or administrators, were suspicious of you because you would accomplish things outside of art and because you had atypical interests from a you know 27-year-old MFA student?
2: <laughs> well, where you just ended that sentence was probably the salient. That was the big deal, that I was not 27 years old. I should say that when I say old in art school, you can be old in art school if you're over 30. So, you know, and I was way over 30. So that was the big thing. I was just wrong in terms of my age. Other people have said, well, you know, maybe they didn't know what to do with you or maybe you made them insecure. I did not feel that. I just felt that my former life just didn't have anything to do or certainly didn't have anything to do in a helpful way with my art education and sometimes being academic was a bad thing and sometimes I railed against it. One time I actually made a painting that had footnotes and I had to take the footnotes off, but I am going to make a painting with footnotes <laughs> again. I am going to do it, because now I am free. But mostly it was like there was this other life I had, and it just didn't have anything to do with our graduate school. But I should say, you know, I my experience was at the Rhode Island School of Design, but everybody else I have talked to who has done an MFA, whether in visual art or fiction writing or poetry, they recognize what I encountered. They recognize the lack of standards. They recognize faculty who were not interested. They recognize the sense that your own gender or race experience was uninteresting or useless or even off putting. So it I just happen to be at RISD, but the the my is generaliz- my generalizations apply to art graduate school.
1: One of the themes of the book or one of the recurring scenes, that's a bad word in the book, is you detailing how your training and background and experience of teaching history Got you into trouble when it came to to becoming an artist and one of my favorite examples is the one you just cited When you write that you were used to scrupulously citing your sources, which is something of course that artists hardly ever do (laughs) (laughs) So how how did you get comfortable after decades of of, you know Chicago manual of style footnoting with shifting from one way of working and thinking to another
2: I never got comfortable I negotiate it every time I approach appropriation in the sense of of using somebody else's image. I just tried to do it, but I never felt comfortable with it. And last year I got a lesson in why that remains the case and should remain the case. I was artist in residence at the Brodsky Center, which is a wonderful printmaking center at Mason Grove School of the Arts. And I made a piece. The outside was scanned images of my knitting. So the frame of the piece was knitting, but scanned, not the actual knitting. And then the the ground of the image was a photograph I had taken on my walk, in my morning walk, looking back at Newark. And then There was repeated figure, which which I had taken, and I tried to make it my own, of Serena Williams playing tennis, a very fascinating pose. So the director liked this piece very much, and I liked it. But we didn't addition it because she looked at it, and she wasn't sure it was far enough from the photograph. So I tracked down where the photograph or the rights were getting. And we got in touch with Getty. We sent them my image and in my piece. And Getty came back and said, every time you show this, you owe us $14,000. The piece has not been additioned. So now I'm thinking, well, maybe I should photograph myself in the pose. And then instead of calling it Serena's over Newark, I can call it Oh Serenas over Newark. <laughs> but that that has yet to be done. Uh the Brodsky Center is in transit from Mason Gross to Philadelphia. And when they get set up again, we'll we'll revisit that piece and maybe addition it.
1: There are a lot of places in the book where you express frustration with the methods of both undergraduate and graduate studio art education. And and there is a laugh out loud part of the book where uh, when you're at RISD and working on your MFA when you go to a student curated show and note that it has more curators 19 than <laughs> works of art.
2: Yes. So the kids get away with all this stuff and I couldn't get away with diddly squat. I mean it seems so unfair.
0: <laughs> so so from these two very different
1: experiences, as, as obviously you were a student at, at, at Harvard once, and then and then you taught, and then you're back in school in two different schools doing different things. So what do you find to be the relative strengths and weaknesses of how studio art was, was taught at Rutgers and at RISD?
2: Well, first of all, let me say that a, a PhD in history at Harvard was a piece of cake compared to, to an MFA at the Rhode Island School of Design. And I should also say that when I was a professor, I taught at a teaching institution, that is Princeton University, where teaching was taken very seriously. And the students work hard. So that was really different from undergraduate and graduate art school. But I think the hardest difference for me was that when I was in history, I had a sense of what I needed to do and how to do it. And I kind of had that sense in undergraduate school, but I didn't have that sense very much in graduate school. I always felt off balance.
0: There was, I guess
1: there's one thing you, you did particularly like about the non-Princeton model, if you will, you found open stacks, libraries with open stacks, to be useful, and it kind of functions as a metaphor in the book in a way.
2: Yes. I should say that at Princeton, the Firestone Library has open stacks, so I could go in Firestone Library and look around. But Marcom, the art school library, I could go into the stacks and I could look around, but I could not take books out. And that is also the case in the art history library at Rutgers. But at RISD, I could borrow the art books, and that was that was heaven.
1: One of the most interesting parts of the book, maybe it's obvious because I kind of keep asking about the, this, this intersection, is places where you're deciding how much your professional experience can inform your student and then studio experiences. At the end of the book not to give anything away you you move toward making works of and and to using digital collage to make work did that medium and that mashup of medium help make it possible for you to embrace a mashup of backgrounds and experiences in your work
2: the answer that leaps into my throat says yes and certainly the digital helped break down my concern for coherence. But there's still the question of subject matter which I think carries over from history and which I still uh, embrace. I do make non-representational, non-figurative, abstract work and I like working that way. I think partly my audience prefers figurative work and so maybe I kind of go that way because people want to see it so hmm i'm I'm wandering around here because i think the answer is yes but i'm not quite sure how
1: one of the the other things that you wrestle with throughout the book is the question of illustration and whether you are leaning whether your work is leaning in that direction There is a long and deep and influential tradition of both illustrators and illustration in American art, from Winslow Homer to Edward Hopper to, as you note in the book, Andy Warhol. What about an illustrator did you want to not be? And what part of the illustration into fine art tradition did you decide was okay?
2: What I didn't want to be was someone who made images that you couldn 't spend time with images that went down too quickly, images that were too didactic, images that were not satisfying visually because they were too much message that i didn 't want to do I, and I still how I judge whether i've succeeded or not with a work or with a series is can can viewers spend a good bit of time with this image. Is it visually rewarding? So I think I see that as now the line between what is illustration and what is fine art. But since I'm, I continue to be drawn to work that has subject matter, you could say, oh, yeah, well, that's the illustration side. Well, if so, so be it.
1: At the end of your RISD experience, and and maybe a better way to answer this is 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 to go beyond the book and, and and to bring it up to the present. Do you think you found elements of illustration that were important to you and worth embracing? And and maybe before you answer, you know, you you note in in your in the book that one of your favorite artists is Robert Colescott, and and I'm a big Colescott fan. I mean, talk about funny. But he's, he's an artist who, I, I think, thought about the things we're talking about.
2: I only met him once in Paris, and he and, and his partner came to visit. This would have been in the mid-90s. So that was before I went to art school and before I thought much. And I think I probably didn't even know who he was. So I couldn't have a conversation with him that I would love to have now if I could pull him out of the grave. Because obviously he had thought about and made work expressing those thoughts and those images that that would reward me i mean have rewarded me, and we're also both from oakland, <laughs>
1: so but he found a way to make at least references to illustration work in his art, in part because he could he could poke fun at it and and make sly ironic jokes about it. Do you, as you work now, feel like you've you've made peace with maybe it being in your work a little bit?
2: Yes, in the sense that no longer do I hear the voices of my teachers. So I had my hand slapped a lot, either about illustration or about text or about historical subject matter when I was in school. And, you know, I I got past that. Part of getting past that was realizing that I am too old to have the kind of career that I might have had if I had succeeded somehow in getting past illustration. Now I just make the art I want to make, and if it's illustration, okay.
1: I mean, I think that's where someone like Edward Hopper got. His figures still look like, I mean... Illustrations dropped into the middle of color and light studies
2: right and in the sense that you can see what's going on There's a narrative maybe narrative also is one of the words that should be in the conversation here Because I think illustration and narrative can go very close together
1: And and, and Cole Scott does lots of narrative.
2: Yeah Yeah, he was very interested in history I really, I really like his compositions. And when I say composition, I mean in the way he puts parts of his paintings together.
0: You know, you mentioned
1: earlier, and of course the title of the book is Olden Art School, that you thought that most of the response you garnered from students in the system, as it were, was because of your age. I mean, the book also talks a lot about how Race and outsiderhood play play a role in your art school's experiences.
0: How did you think
1: through whether the response you were getting was because of age or because of race or because of gender or because of outsiderhood?
2: Well, as I say you know i don't I don't want to pretend that I could disentangle all that it's It's all part of me, but I could look around and I could look around in New York and New Jersey. And I could see artists who were black, but who were young, artists who were female, who were young, and see that they were different from me, who was black and female, but old. So that was part of it. I could see artists who had gone through the, the process I was going through, who had the race and the gender, or the race and the gender, but whose experience was different. I also realized, and I speak about this, that I had the handicap of 20th century eyes. And that was a major handicap of of not being comfortable with do-it-yourself aesthetics. I always had to try to talk myself into loosening up. And that was not a problem with my younger peers.
1: Yeah, that those are really interesting parts of, of, of the book. I think people my age can particularly relate to those parts of the book. One of the uh, other things that pops into the book over and over again is your relationship with RISD. You a number of times describe it as a particular space by white people for wealthy people and and often for wealthy white people. And, and and then, of course i I don't want to give away kind of a key part of the book but but there is a moment near the end of the book where where RISD takes a pretty pointed shot at you and you take and and, and you in the book take a pretty pointed shot at them in response how much How much of of your thoughts on RISD in print are memoir writing, and how much of them are criticisms you hope that get discussed at their next board meeting <laughs>
2: Have you talked to their board?
1: No, no, no.
2: I actually know the head of the RISD board, and he does want me to talk to the board. So he has said. But I did not write this thinking, I need to talk to the RISD board. I need to tell the RISD board a thing or two. No. And I need to stress again that my discussion of art school, of graduate art school, extends far beyond RISD into art education generally. So it's not just just happened to be my place. So there's a generalization there that I hope other places might also look at. And I I should add too that art schools are generally overwhelmingly, graduate art schools are generally overwhelmingly white. And because art school is so expensive uh, people of a certain level financially i fit into that level financially and i but as a black american i think that makes it harder for me for many other people to see me because i'm not a poor black american i'm not an innocent black american in the sense of coming to the educational institution bereft of my own, not social currency, but intellectual currency. So I came knowing a lot, and I came with enough money to do it myself. So I made a piece, actually, which flopped, which was about my embarrassment, actually, at being a non-poor black American, called Embarrassment of Riches. And I think my cohort couldn't wrap their heads around a black American who was embarrassed because she was relatively rich. You know, there's just too much going on in there. I mean, I'm not a really rich person, but I'm not a poor person.
1: Yeah, even an educational institution wanted a simplified narrative rather than a complicated narrative.
2: If they wanted that narrative at all. And other people talking about their experiences in MFA programs, particularly writing programs, have spoken of being discouraged from talking about what's on their mind.
1: Finally, where, where are you now? What are you making now? Does any of what you're making now kind of, would we recognize its origins in the book?
2: Uh, yes. Where I am now, I'm actually talking to you from the Adirondacks, where I'm taking a deep breath before a very intensive book promotion starts. And I am not able to make very much art because book promotion and book production have taken up so much of my time and my inner, my mental energy. I, I am not able to do both writing book stuff and art hand stuff at the same intensity. So my writing machine, my book machine has to get going and get warmed up before it really works and that takes some time and my art making machine also needs to get going and get revved up and make some art before it really makes art worth looking at and that second machine has been kind of idle for quite a while because the first machine has been taking up all the diesel fuel so I have managed this year, and we are halfway through this year, I have only made three, four small pieces which were commissioned to go with a play. And three Hole Press has published this play with these four little, largely digital collages, you know, some handwork, but mostly done on the computer. And that's about it. So it's very frustrating to be talking about myself as an artist and then people say, well, what are you working on now? Is that working on my, my book promotion is that what I'm working on. It's the, you know, the store of time is finite and I look forward to getting back to making art, but I know that between book promotion and its travel, I will not really be able to make art seriously, satisfyingly, until 2019.
1: Making his work.
2: Making his work. But, you know, you asked earlier about the relationship between my former life and my life as a painter. And one thing that just came across my email was that the history of white people has just been translated into French. Hooray! and it's going to be published in November, and will I come to Paris? Well, of course, but the block of time that that will take to go to Paris and celebrate the publication of the French edition of History of White People, I am not going to make any art in November.
0: Nell Painter, thanks so much.
2: Oh, well, thank you, Tyler. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Those were hard questions.